0: Psalm 13, a psalm of David. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? You can't see anybody from here this evening, pretty much. Those of you who are at the back, I can see your silhouettes, but I know you're there. Um, Do keep Psalm 13 open in front of you, um, if you would, for the next few minutes as we reflect on these words. Um, Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Father God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks to us, God who speaks for us. We pray that as we Uh, hear these words and reflect on them, we would be hearing your voice. Not just hearing what you say, uh, but being ready to put it into practice in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The stereotype of being British, or one of them, is not to be very good at complaining, isn't it? The British are famously stiff upper-lipped, don't want to make a fuss. I mean, a restaurant, definitely don't want to send something back or do anything like that. I mean, maybe you're not like that, but that's the British stereotype, isn't it? But I want to say there is a real difference between being a moaner, someone who just complains, concerned only with ourselves, and crying out in pain when life is difficult. Not all psalms are songs of praise, are they? Um, if you know the Psalms well, you'll know they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Some of them are very much hymns of praise. Some of them are almost like epic poems going through big chunks of Israel's history. Some of them are words of wisdom for us. And some of them are laments. And Psalm 13 teaches us that we can worship the Lord when we are lamenting, as well as when we are rejoicing. That he walks with us in times of sorrow, as well as times of gladness. Um, It's a short prayer, isn't it? Just six verses, prayed in the midst of hard circumstances. How long, Lord? And it's written by David, the ancient king of Israel. It's a poem which comes in three parts, pretty obviously, if you look at it, three pairs of verses. Uh, We might say the first two verses are pain, the middle two verses are petition or prayer, And the final two verses are praise, if you wanted to neatly divide it up. But there's much more to it than that, because in each of those three pairs, we find the writer concerning himself, first of all, with God, then with himself, and finally, with his circumstances, what's going on in his life. And so it's a brief, but very carefully crafted and deep reflection on God and on life and on what it's like. Something bad is happening to the writer of this psalm. How long, Lord, is this going to last? And yet, a few verses later on, he's able to draw the conclusion in that wonderfully simple statement, 13 words of one syllable. He says, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now, we don't know for sure the exact context in which David wrote this psalm. Uh, We know a bit about David, of course. He He would become a great and successful king. Maybe by the time he wrote this, he already was. Um, He was also someone who knew his fair share of suffering. Probably the likeliest background to Psalm 13 is to do with the antagonism between David and his predecessor, Saul, King Saul. Um, The Bible tells us that from the time Saul became jealous of David's success, he became his enemy for the rest of his days. So maybe that's what's going on, which prompts David to write these words. They're words of David. They're also very much words, though, as Tom alluded to, which resonate with God's people down through the ages at different times. The Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible. They express the painful circumstances of different individuals within Israel, but also of the whole nation in some of the things that it would go through. As later on they were defeated, exiled into Babylon, wrenched out of the presence of their God and their place of worship. When that happened, when the people lost everything, when they were not even able to worship as they'd been instructed, they might well have prayed like this, mightn't they? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Look on me and answer. But we mustn't stop there. Because if these words are not only true of David, but also true of Israel, of God's people, then how much more are they true of the one who would in due course be sent by his father to live as the one who embodied all that God's people were meant to be? The model Israelite, if you like. The true Israel, the representative of the whole nation. I'm talking, of course, about Jesus, aren't I? About God's faithful one, his own son, who also faced a great deal of suffering brought on him by his enemies, didn't he? And faced it on behalf of all of his people. So we might think of Jesus in the garden before his arrest, famously praying to his father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knowing that suffering was on its way. And of course, we know that Jesus knew the Psalms well and used them in his prayers. And there are some specific examples given in the New Testament. So we might most obviously think of Jesus crying out on the cross in the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe he also prayed Psalm 13 at that time. It's not recorded, but it would make a lot of sense. If you read the psalm from the perspective of Jesus on the cross. How long, Lord? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Remembering that his real enemies were not the Romans who nailed him to the cross or the chief priests who campaigned to get rid of him, but the enemies he was fighting as he hung there the enemies of sin and death and evil. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Yes, before we appropriate this psalm for ourselves, which is what I want to encourage us to do this evening, to use these as words of prayer that we can pray, we need to start by recognising how it speaks of Jesus, In fact, speaks for Jesus in the midst of his trials. And when we pray it, we should pray it as those who are God's people because we've been included in Jesus. Look on me and answer, Lord. My enemy will say, I've overcome him. That's exactly how it must have looked, wasn't it? As Jesus hung there dying. That's a prayer to pray. And it's when we understand that these words are Not just the words of David, or indeed the words of Israel. Not just words that are good for us to use when we're facing hard times. They are all of those things. And it is one of the glories of the Psalms that they give us words to pray when we can't find the words for ourselves. All of these things are true, but most of all it's when we understand that these words of lament also take us to the real life experience and suffering of David's descendants, of Jesus Christ himself it's then, I think, that we can find an answer to the question. I don't know if if it's been nagging away at your mind as you heard this psalm, but it nags away at mine as I read Psalm 13. The question, how can the one who's crying out, how long, Lord, and talking about his enemies defeating him, say just a few moments later, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. It sounds a little bit too convenient, a bit too easy. Almost trite, doesn't it? Life isn't always like that. But the truth is, the one who trusts in Jesus can pray these words, even if the struggle and the sadness is still there. And there are different ways that we can look at how this works which help us to unpack it. I want to suggest three ways of looking at this psalm and at life which help us to understand this conundrum. How can we both lament... And confidently rejoice. We can only answer that question in Jesus. Um, the first one is this. Um, the prophetic perfect tense. Um, I don't know if you how good you were at grammar at school. Um, anyone do French or German? Anyone do Latin? Well, oh, I can hear a few, no. I've never I never did any Latin at all. Maybe you did enough grammar like me to remember just about that the perfect tense is the one that we use to express completed actions. You know, I walked to church, I drank my tea, whatever it might be. Something which is done. The Bible often uses this tense to speak of things which God has done. But it also uses it to speak of things that God hasn't yet done, but that he will do. Sometimes people have called this the prophetic perfect. It's speaking in the way that although God hasn't done it yet, from our perspective it still lies somewhere in the future perhaps. But the fact that it will happen is completely certain and secure because his promises and his faithfulness are total and complete. There is no doubt that he will do it, so we might as well speak of it as if it's already taken place. When David says, My heart rejoices in your salvation, I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. I don't know. He may well have still been waiting for the practical answer to his prayers. Verses 3 and 4 look on me and answer, Lord my God. But he knows what the Lord has promised. He knows that his salvation is so secure that he can speak of it as already done. So do we. We don't yet see the new heavens and the new earth, do we? But Jesus died and he's risen and our future is not in doubt. That's one way we can look at a psalm like this and understand how it can be both lament and rejoice. Um, second thing to say is simply track record. second way of understanding David's prayer and God's actions, it's quite closely related to that first one, but David can speak with such confidence in the midst of his trouble because he's experienced God's salvation in the past. The Lord has a track record, doesn't he? David not only knows the ways in which God has intervened in his own life over the years, he also knows well the stories of what God has done for his people through the generations in the scriptures. If you've ever been involved in recruiting someone for a job, one of the key things you look for, isn't it? What has this candidate done? What is their track record? It's one thing for somebody to tell you you know, in an interview or an application form, this is what I would like to do. It's another thing to say, this is what I've done over the last few years. When David faces trouble from his enemies, one of the reasons when he, why he's able to move in his prayer from lament to confidence is that he's praying to a God who has proved himself in the past. That's our God. The God who Paul writes about in his letter to the Philippians when he says to his friends, He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We can have confidence in the future because we've seen what he's done in the past. We're not starting from scratch here with God. We have a lot to look back on, don't we? Even more than David did. And then the third way to understand how David can pray with such confidence even when he's in the midst of his trouble. Because of his enemies... Is that he knows God's character. That's the third one, the character of God. So that he can trust. So he can trust that while evil things may happen to him, they sometimes do happen to God's people, and evil things are not good. He can still be sure that even in the midst of them, God will be working for the benefit of those who love him. It's those famous words from Paul again, isn't it? This time from Romans 8. Not that evil is good but that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And again, most of all, this is true of Jesus on the cross, isn't it? It was the most evil action in history. And yet in the midst of it, God was redeeming his people. And all three of these things, speaking in the prophetic perfect tense, remembering God's track record, speaking out of a knowledge of God's character, what he is like, that he always works good, even in the midst of evil. All of them can be said with conviction by the Christian believer, even in the midst of suffering, because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's where David's confidence comes from, isn't it? And it's where our confidence needs to come from as well, if it's to be built on rock and not on sand. So let's hold all of these things in mind, what it means for David to write these words how they're words that have spoken for the experiences of God's people down through the years and how they point to the experience of our Saviour Jesus and therefore for all of those who belong to him. And then finally, let's just ask for a few moments, well, how then can we pray Psalm 13? Again, three brief reflections to leave with you. Number one, as Christians, can we sometimes be tempted to think that we shouldn't complain? That complaining is somehow not a Christian thing to do. Again, I, I said at the beginning, that can be very British, can't it? Stereotypically, the British approach to life when we're asked how we're doing when life is falling apart is to say something like, mustn't grumble. But if things are bad, why mustn't we grumble? Grumbling, I want to suggest, is... In the right context exactly what we should do now i'm not suggesting as i said earlier on that christians should be monists you know, given what christ has done for us i think i'd suggest that more than anyone else we do always have things to give thanks for and it's healthy to be reminded of that but at the same time sometimes life feels rubbish doesn't it we've all had that experience And there may well be someone, some people here this evening, who would say, yeah, that's life for me right now. What Psalm 13 and some of the other psalms give us is both permission to complain, to cry out honestly to God with our feelings. It's good enough for David, let alone Jesus. It's good enough for us. It's not as if God doesn't know how we feel anyway. But it doesn't only give us permission, it gives us a model Here are some words to use, which are words of lament. When perhaps we can't come up with words for ourselves, there's raw emotion, especially in those opening verses of the psalm, aren't there? Brutal honesty, not dressing it up. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. When life hurts, we can pray Psalm 13. Second reflection, the writer here offers his complaints, but he doesn't complain about the Lord. He complains to the Lord. Do you notice that? It's a big difference, isn't it? The basis for this is relationship, because real strong relationships are based on honesty, aren't they? If we think about our relationships that we have with our families, when they work well, well, essentially we can't pretend with our families, can we? They know what we're like. They know our good points and they know our less good points. We certainly shouldn't pretend with God while meanwhile moaning about him behind his back as if he doesn't know what we're saying. We can bring it to him. That is the invitation for us. When life is hard, bring your stuff to God in prayer. That's what David models for us here in Psalm 13. Much better to bring it to God and say, Lord, this... What are you going to do than to go around moaning to yourself or to others? And that is the model here. When life sucks, do your lamenting to God's face in his presence. And as people in Christ, we know we're invited to do that, don't we? Or we should do. Because Jesus says to us, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We don't have to hide our burdens away to come to Jesus. Come with them. And then number three, the psalmist says, how long? It's a prayer which orients us towards the future, isn't it? Um, Tom, this morning in his sermon, spoke about the eternal question, which is asked by children on car journeys. I didn't know he was going to do that when I was thinking about Psalm 13 earlier on this week. But I think it applies here as well. What is the question that children ask in the car? Are we nearly there yet? You know, you're taking them to Cornwall. You've just reached the M69, something like that. That's when it happens, isn't it? They have no idea, exactly. They have no idea where Cornwall is. They don't know how long it's going to take. But they do have a sense, don't they, that this journey will have an end. They know it won't be forever. Well, that is true for us as Christians when we go through hard times as well and when we cry out to God in lament. Praying how long is a reminder of where we are in history. The story which runs from God's creation right through to his new creation. When we pray how long, Lord, it should remind us that, well, Jesus has already died for our sins. He is risen again, and right now he is reigning in glory. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to bring victory and to bring peace to his people. So even as we are crying out, Lord, this hurts, it's hard, how long? We are also reminding ourselves that there is a day of hope that will come. Our question for God is not when, it's, sorry, our question for God is when, not if, it's not in doubt what he is going to do. So that is Psalm 13. Three pairs of short verses, not a neat and tidy psalm that pretends life is just fine but a crafted psalm. A psalmist does not have all the answers. The life of faith is not one of easy answers. But he has some of the answers, and that's enough. He has the big things in place, and that enables him to pray at the end of the psalm. I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Some of you may have heard of a vicar called John Barrett. Yes, some of all of you, probably. Uh, and I remember John speaking uh, a few years ago about uh, the, the hymn, I Cannot Tell, which speaks to this. Uh, you know the one that's to the tune of Danny Boy? And how helpful the structure of that hymn is in reminding us how we can live in a world which is often confusing as well as painful. To finish with this thought... Um, if you know that hymn, you'll know that each verse starts with those words, I cannot tell. You know, I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set, his heart, should set his heart upon the sons of men. It acknowledges that there are things we cannot comprehend fully, this side of eternity. But then halfway through each verse, it has the words, but this I know. And I think that's really helpful. There are things we don't have the answers to sometimes we can't work out what the Lord is up to. So let's hold on to the answers we do have. But this I know, for example, in verse it's either it's 2 or 3, he heals the brokenhearted and stays our sin and calms our lurking fear and lifts the burden from the heavy laden, for yet the Saviour of the world is here. We need a bit of Psalm 13 in our lives, don't we? And in the life of our church because we need to be real about the suffering and sorrow that is also a part of life. And especially that experiencing that doesn't mean we're somehow deficient or bad Christians in some way. When we suffer, when we lament and cry out to God, we are emulating and imitating not only David, but Jesus, who walked through the darkness to win salvation and hope for us. Someone called Matt Searle Um, who wrote a book called Tumbling Sky, which some of you might remember we've mentioned in church before. He says this, Brokenness is not a sign of spiritual failure. Sadness is not a denial of the gospel. Tears are not incompatible with biblical joy. All those things are true. And because of Jesus, I can also say, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. In a few moments, Tom's going to come and lead us uh, in a time of prayer. And before we do that, I'd just like to invite you to keep the words of that psalm in front of you for a moment. And uh, Matt Searle, who wrote those words i just read, also wrote some songs to these psalms. And we're going to hear one of those now and the words are they're a slightly different version of the Bible to the one we have in front of us, but it's the same psalm, Psalm 13. And these couple of minutes, why don't you use that time, if you want to, to pray these to the Lord. Or if not for yourself, maybe there's someone you know who you'd like to pray these things for as we hear the psalm sung.